Hi, hello, and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin, and this is my co-host, Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today, we're talking about the movie, Frank. But before we get to that, we have some listener voicemail that we have to react to. Uh, in case you didn't know, we do have a phone number that you can call. It's 833-600-2428. Yes, that's 833-600-CHAT. Call us anytime, and we'll play it on, on the air. That's right. And just like we're about to do with this voicemail right here. Hello. Is it me, Adel Baumschweiger, the famous comedian Adel Baumschweiger? I'm just calling to say hello. I love the podcast. I just finished listening to the Off Script podcast. Haha. <laughs> Listen, it reminds me of that time I once was in school as a teacher. It was a movie called Kindergarten Cop. One of my favorite quotes was, You belong to me. You're not going to have your mommies running behind you like your little pushies. No more complaining. No more Mr. Kimball has to go to the bathroom. Nothing. There is no bathroom. Anyway, keep up the great work. I love listening to the podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Thank you so much. One of our biggest supporters, yes, Arnold Braunschweiger. Yes, this is the second time we've gotten a call from him. Amazing. That is amazing. And an amazing reference uh, from Kindergarten Cop. Have you seen it? No, I have not. I haven't either. We need to do this movie. I think we for our we need to for have like a Schwarzenegger Arnold. month just to set, sate your Schwarzenegger curiosity. That's right. He's got so many amazing films, <laughs> and that's an amazing quote. I know that quote, even though I haven't seen that movie, just because Arnold's such an icon. Uh, <laughs> and he referenced. I think he was probably referring to the off-script episode with Andrew Flair uh, mm-hmm. when Andrew was talking about uh, how people take on English teaching jobs or they teach English in Japan as kind of a way to establish themselves when they move from America uh, to Japan. So it's such an interesting thing, you know, like, especially when he was talking about how the Japanese teachers hardly even speak English, like being able to teach a language uh, to people that don't like you don't speak their language. That's some pretty amazing stuff. It is. It was really cool to talk to him about that. And uh, if you haven't heard it, you should check it out just like our man Arnold did. Um, one more time, thank you so much for the phone call. Arnold, if you want to call us up, you, the listener, um, want to call us up, that number is 833-600-2428. Yes, that's 833-600-CHAT. Okay, now we're going to talk about the subject of this episode, which is the movie Frank, which comes recommended to us uh, by Alex from Honey Guide. Just to mention another off-script episode, Alex <laughs> is one of two members of the music group Honey Guide, and I interviewed them a few weeks back. Um, and it's interesting that he recommended this movie because it, it is, is musical. interesting he recommended this movie because he's part of a very experimental-sounding uh, group. You know, they don't make music that's very traditional. It's very ethereal, very uh, has a very different aesthetic than most music you would hear, uh, which is very purposeful. Uh, from their point of view. So it's interesting that they chose this movie, which is about a bunch of people who are trying to make some eclectic music um, and struggling to do that as well. Well, uh, fighting the urge to go mainstream, I guess. I thought that was, you know, I was thinking about them a lot when I was watching this movie. So it's amazing that he's the one, the reason why I'm watching it. So me too. thank you, Alex. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so much for recommending uh, this movie to us. Now let's talk about Frank. At the heart of it all, is Frank. How to describe Frank? 
Mostly, he seems friendly, though sometimes a little intense. He can hide himself away for days at a time. What goes on inside that head? Inside that head. Yes. This is a musical, dark, dramatic comedy. Directed by Lenny Abrahamson. The cast includes Magneto, Elizabeth Darko, and Ex Machina Boy. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I also watched it on YouTube. All right, Joey, go ahead and hit us with the synopsis for Frank. A man is seduced by an incredible opportunity, only to find himself isolated in the woods with a psychopath. Mm, yes, that's Frank. Um, that uh, also- not Ex Machina, although it's <laughs> almost identical. It also yes. has Donald Gleason in it. Yes, which I um, I like this guy. This is the only, I think, the second movie I've seen with Dom Hall Gleason. But- that's not true. What? Have you seen Star Wars? You're right. What am I saying? Have you seen uh, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and Rise of Skywalker? I worked, those, those hard, right there. I worked hard to block his role from those movies out of my mind. Have you seen Black Mirror, the, one of the first, second, first or second season? He's in one of those, too. Do those count as movies? Well, it counts as something you've seen him in. Okay, you're right. I spoke <laughs> out of term. This guy is in everything, and uh, he's great in this. Let's get into it with our pros and our cons. Joey, let's start with your pros. What do you like about Frank? I like this movie because it's so weird. There's lots of stuff to talk about, lots of stuff to unpack. Um, there's some really great performances from unlikely places, um, and it's extremely uncomfortable, which I find kind of refreshing. What about you? I, I love how weird this movie is. Um, I, one of the things that stuck out to me was the way that they portrayed social media, which I thought they did effectively, especially because they jumped from platform to platform. Um, they, the music in this movie, anytime you make a, a movie about music, it's like you're having to do two different things because not only do you have to make a good movie, but you also have to effectively create music. And um, when this movie, this movie kind of does two things like when the when the music is bad they're brave about it they're not afraid that the harsh sounds will scare away the audience but also when it's good i was surprised at how good it was um and obviously there's plenty of music that we'll talk about with this movie uh this film is unique and memorable Uh, it's probably pretty obvious but definitely worth um mentioning and also the, the the gall the absolute nerve to hide michael fassbender's face this whole movie I love it. It is something yeah, I, yeah. I would I don't think I would be able to make that same choice because it's actually I love it when they do stuff like that. And this one doesn't quite go all the way because they do eventually show his face near the end of the movie, which I feel like was a good move personally. I didn't I, there's so much to talk about this with this movie. I didn't even mention one of my like this trope in movies. I, I call it the V for Vendetta dilemma in which a famous actor hides his face for the entire movie. There's a couple of really great examples of this, and this is a pretty good, this is a pretty good contender for that as well, um, for the same kind of reasons. Um, but yeah, we can talk more about Fassbender's performance later. What is the kind of stuff did you not like about this movie? Right, so um, honestly, when a movie is this weird, it's difficult for me to, to really pinpoint what I... <sighs> What wasn't what wasn't done well because it's so unconventional. Yes. But one thing that I felt like they kind of whiffed on was emphasizing 
um, like the pursuit of music as like a sacrifice um, or how much you have to sacrifice to embark on that endeavor. It was clear that our main character had a boring job that he was not motivated to do, but it was sustaining him, right? It was something he had to do. Um, and he kind of was able just to leave it and even giving up his nest egg while he expressed some frustration with feeling like maybe it wasn't worth that sacrifice. We, it never really comes around to show any sort of impact or any sort of, uh, you know, backfire from having committed so much to this artistic endeavor. Um, as a person who tries to do, you know, things like this in real life, not music, but podcasting, it is a big sacrifice to do. And I, I, I feel like they missed maybe an opportunity to emphasize that. I don't know if I completely agree with that because I feel like they do emphasize some of the sacrifice he makes, um, like him getting stabbed, him losing all his money and like losing kind of all connection with the rest of the world. Like all of that is is definitely like in there. There's definitely some real consequences he faces. Um, but I also feel like they're, they're overemphasizing the sacrifice that you need to make to make great music. And I feel like that, that you don't actually have to make that much of a sacrifice as much as I feel like, yes, you're right. We have to make sacrifices to make art, but not to the extent that they're showing in this movie. And I think that's kind of what they're getting at. Anyway, some of the things I didn't like, um, I feel like this movie is really thin on its sympathetic characters. Not too many people that are worthy of your sympathy. Um, it's, it, it's confusing about whether it's rooted in reality or if it's just a fantasy. It seems to contradict itself at some points. Um, our least interesting character is our protagonist. And one other thing, I didn't feel like this movie was uh, appropriately weird enough. I, I, I already mentioned that it was weird. The story is extremely weird, but it's, so, it's such a conventional conventionally told story there's no breaks from the traditional format you know there's no trippy visuals no non-linear time structure no unreliable narrators you know it's th those are just some examples of things that you've seen in very untraditional movies to have i feel like it would be more powerful although even more confusing to have a movie about an eccentric band that is told eccentrically um whereas it's just you know telling the story straight which definitely kind of aids in its message, but I feel like is a missed opportunity. Okay, and we'll expand on these ideas as we get into our overall, um, which we'll do right now. So take it away, Joey. This is a really weird one. <laughs> <laughs> Even for a movie whose titular character always wears a giant fiberglass mask, this is a surprisingly strange movie. Um, Frank's, Frank the movie's biggest strength is its constant attention it pays to the character of Frank and his giant head. It doesn't just say, one of our characters has a giant head, deal with it. It is constantly pointing at it, laughing at it, and addressing it. And by the end, it seems totally normal, and this is exactly the problem. You have overlooked the most important and glaring problem with this person and dismissed it as eccentric. At the beginning of the film, you're encouraged to stop thinking about it, to just let it go. But the movie is set in the real world. There are consequences, disappointments, and hard truths to learn. I think Frank is meant to embody some sort of fantastical, mythical being, but in reality, he's even more broken than the rest of us. The head that he's wearing is a very clear metaphor for mental illness, something obvious, something so in your face, it's actually hard to address directly. Our protagonist, John, looks directly past this to see what he wants to see, to believe what he wants to believe, and ultimately destroys everything he worked for, which he 100% deserves. <laughs> Do not feel bad for John at all. John is naive, he is hopeful, and he is blind. 
He wants to think of himself as a noble artist, slaving away on his keyboard, writing the next great song. In reality, he's just a sad, strange little man, to quote Buzz Lightyear. He thinks <laughs> of the band as a kind of an eccentric group of passionate artists, unbound by traditional mediums and methods. The movie takes us on his journey to discover that they're really just a bunch of really broken people supporting each other, and he... John is exploiting them. Exploiting them by talking exploiting about them Exploiting them online. by pushing them into a direction that they don't belong mm. or where they don't feel comfortable. Breaking up the group uh, like very hard, right? When, he, when they go to South by Southwest, there's a little bit of tension, but everyone's like, okay, maybe this could be fun. But when he starts saying, we need to change our sound, we need to sound more likable, that's when things really start to break down. Well, I, I thought it was, it's something that I, I'm not super certain of, but the whole um, like Clara not caring if other people like them um they talk about this when they do the tuft uh like the the lone tuft song and yeah. it seems like um frank wants to become popular he wants to share their sound with the world um so but clara and eventually i feel like uh frank comes around to this too doesn't want that they're they're very much against doing anything uh, that makes like forces them to be more likable or more mainstream. I think when when I first watched it, I didn't realize that this what happened. But there is a really big twist in this movie, which is the reveal that Frank is mentally ill. Mm -hmm. It's more than just he's weird. It's more than just he wears his head because he thinks he thinks it's going to aid him in his musical endeavors. He's he cannot think straight, and this head is like his his way of interacting with the world. So from that perspective, like rewatching the movie, you start to see Clara's role played very differently. She's not some like obsessive, crazy girlfriend. She, she is that, but she's also Frank's caretaker. You know, she's protecting him from what she perceives as dangerous to him. And she's 100% right. She knows what's best for him, even if he doesn't know what's best for himself. Okay, so this leads me to when Dom calls Frank 100% the sanest cat I ever met. What does he mean by this? Is it because Dom is actually not like close to sane? So his, you know, uh, you know, his evaluation of Frank's sanity is just totally off? I mean, that's, I think that's part of it. it. It may also just be like kind of a, a comment. I mean, nobody knows what, what's up with Frank, right? Especially not Don. But... I, it could just be a one of those things where it's like like when Socrates says that he's the wisest man because he knows what he doesn't know. Like because everyone else thinks they're sane in an insane world, therefore the one man who is insane must be the most sane. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> I don't so know. It, it don't, might be that deep, but it also might just be the ramblings of a madman. Exactly. I think that's kind of this movie's charm. Wow, but uh, and I don't want to I don't want to glaze over what you said right before that though, because um, I immediately I, my perspective is shifted on Clara or Clara, and um, once you see Frank as not a genius but you know someone who's mentally ill, uh, yeah. it does seem like she's being more protective as opposed to um, you know obsessive or defensive or trying to hide him away. It's more of just she doesn't want him to be you know she wants to take care of him. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm not, she definitely is very unlikable throughout the whole movie. She definitely does a lot of things that is like very, like very unhelpful and very mean to John. 
And yeah, although, stabbing like, is is on the list of like mean yes, things. for sure. <laughs> There's so many things that she does that are just straight abusive. But I think her like her primary like the, her, the thing that she cares the most about is Frank more so than the music they're making or where they get their food or what the hell John wants to do. And like I think I think that's that's like that is so interesting, right? Because you're conflating this idea of um mental illness with this idea of eccentricity and you see all throughout the movie where john just ignores all these red flags about how messed up the situation is because he believes that they are some very experimental very interesting band um, when really they're just kind of a group of misfits that have found each have found a way to keep each other entertained and you know uh, that's all they really ever wanted they're really know. serious about being weird they are very serious about being weird. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I don't know how serious I should take it, but um, this movie portrays like the act of creating an album as more than just playing the music. It's mm-hmm. so much more than that. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a job that you show up and, and do, and then you're done. Like going out into um, Vetno and living there for so long is this bizarre creative process it was interesting i i thought vetno looked like a great place to spend vacation you know <laughs> i think there's i don't know what do you think of that do you think there's there's value to that well it's one of the reasons i'm so fascinated by the musicians in my life the people that i personally know who create original works of music is because mm-hmm. i i don't know it's it's kind of abstract to me it's not something that i feel like i'm wired to do to create music um i love music i listen to a lot of music i've played a few instruments not i've never mastered one but i've i've you know i learned some music theory and you're pretty good at the ukulele i appreciate that but even in this movie they call out you the ukulele as like kind of a hacky instrument and But okay, so I'm not a musician. So when I see people go about it uh, and create something almost out of nothing, you're just using their voice and an instrument and, and, and their ideas, it blows my mind. So when I see a bunch of these people who take music really seriously doing something bizarre, like running back and forth and tapping these poles that are in the ground and like falling <laughs> down and having to use a safe word because it's getting too intense, part of me is saying, what the heck is going on? But also part of me is saying, you know what? Maybe this is necessary. Maybe this is part of the process for them. Uh, because I, I really, I'm on the outside looking in. I don't, I don't know. Um, so for me, half the time I was like, is this a criticism of artists who take their own creative process too seriously and they do all these weird eccentric things that really don't matter. They're just, they're just being weird. Or if music is really that far out there that something like this could be necessary. Yeah. I don't see. That's exactly my dilemma is that I think this movie is, I think to me, this, this is a clear criticism or satire on the quote unquote creative process you know putting yourself in some sort of fugue state putting yourself into some weird environment to get inspired by something i don't like i don't put a lot of stock in that i guess because like inspiration can literally come from anywhere as long as you're open to new ideas and you don't have to go to you don't have to go to this kind of lengths to, in order to get inspired truly right like you're 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 chasing nothing you're chasing a dragon there's no, there's nothing out there that's going there's no place you can just go and then suddenly you're oh i'm so inspired by this because i stayed here and stared at a wall for 40 hours you know like they 
it's way more about the idea of the creative process than it is about actually trying to be creative. And I think that's like, I think that's what the, the danger that John falls into is that he just, he's so taken in by this that he thinks that everything they're doing is part of some grand plan when it's clear they're just crazy people in a field, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's no rhyme or reason to this. It's just, they're just fooling around. But also to me as a person who's very much in the middle of like capitalist America and a lot of the things I do are very intentional and very unoriginal. Uh, you know, you're doing the same thing as the person living in the exact same apartment unit above you and below you mm -hmm. and in the apartment complex, you know, across the street to see people go out and do something weird, like record the sound of water being poured into a bucket and then dropping the bucket. <laughs> it's like... Maybe they're onto something here, you know? Why, just to do something, I mean, I'm not going to say pouring water into a bucket's totally original, but like to, to, to create something, maybe the sound of that particular bucket being filled with water is unique and that's never been, existed before. And now you, you've found something new. I think there's, there's something novel there. And I, I like that idea. I personally, um, as a person who owns various recording equipment i was like maybe i should go do that maybe i should go outside and like record the sound of my boots as i jump and splash on like some damp ground uh, i think there's value to that but i the one thing that john does say in this movie that i agree with is how they need to bring their corners in and then meet other people kind of in the middle there i think that like i respect a lot of stuff that like honey guide does where they're they're like, okay, we're going to make something that we think is interesting. And I think, that's, I think that's great because I think that's what you should be doing is making something that you yourself think is interesting. But I also think that if you want to make a career out of it or want to make it into something like very worthwhile, you have to find what other people are looking for and, and reach out to them um, like personally or, or it, it, you know, put out an olive branch or something and say, okay, like this is how you can... Let me draw you into this thing. You know, let me, let me hook you in a little bit. I think, especially nowadays when there's more content than there's ever been before, um, you need stuff like that. And I think learning how that works and, and catering to that is valuable, um, even if, you know, you're obsessive about the details of things. Yeah, if you want to win, you have to play the game. You can't... Yeah, but I, I think it's more than that. I think if you, have to, if you want to make something great, you know, I think you have to do some of that. I think you have to, I think just staying in your own bubble and saying, oh, this is like everything I see is perfect and everything that I do is going to create something great is, is naive. I think you need to go outside of that and, look, and take inspiration from other places, learn as much as you can about the way these things work and, and you know, use that knowledge to create something unique to yourself. Well, and, and I think that's definitely true if you're trying to reach some sort of mainstream success or even success in, in any capacity, right? If you want anyone else to be able to identify with your art, it's definitely possible to create art that's just for you. And, and, and it's an expression of your own feelings that that's cathartic to you to just express, right? Yes. Um, like I, as, as I saw it, my first conclusion after watching this was that like Frank and and Clara and like their immediate band members, like their relationship, they didn't need to be heard or appreciated for what, for what that, um, for their actions, for their music to be good, you know, from their perspective, that's really all that needed to hear it. They, it was such a transcendent experience for them to come together and create this album that they made that 
that could have been it. It didn't matter who yeah. heard it after that. They got true satisfaction out of that. You know, it was something that they worked hard on. Um, and it seemed like Clara was kind of pushing the people in who joined the band out if they tried to expand the, the band's reach. The, one of the very first things we see or hear of the band is their radio interview where um, this guy, Lucas, who we barely see, um, is... They're talking on the radio and he tries, well, he gets them this radio interview and right after the radio interview, they push him out of the band. He tries to drown himself. Same thing yeah. with, um, with Dom. He helped them record the album. Like the way I saw it, he was in charge of the switchboard. So he was like the mastermind behind, or, and he also got them Vetno. Uh, so he put together this ability to record and make their album shareable. He ends up killing himself. Then we've got right. John. And John puts them on social media and ends up getting them enough engagement to get invited by South by Southwest. And he ends up leaving the band as well after causing much more damage to the band. Um, part of this is that their notoriety wasn't based on the merit of their music. Their notoriety was based on how basically a freak show on how people mm -hmm. saw them, him as the chinchilla guy um, and <laughs> everyone else as just straight up freak shows. And they didn't, they, that's why they knew them. And that was it. That's as far as their reach went for the most part. Um, all the all publicity did was cause them trouble and that's john realizes that and he's able to leave without totally destroying them um but i thought this was just i don't know it was an interesting take for me because um a lot of times when you do anything that like this like create art the implication and it's part of the reason why people can be shy about these types of things the uh, self-expression is that a, you think you have something that's worth sharing and b you want to become famous because of it right that's like just automatic even if you don't say that even if you don't believe that people will assume it um so I, I thought this movie kind of made an argument that hey maybe it's even if it's not going to be publicly accepted or publicly celebrated it can have its own value just to you yeah i think there's i think that's true i think that that is a great lesson to take away from this movie um for sure and I mean, you definitely see them when I mean when the band reunites, right? Yes, it's it's back to its core members, it's back to its core beliefs. You know, John is no longer in the picture, so yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great way to interpret that. Frank is such an interesting guy, and I know that there's this kind of like duality of Frank between being the musical genius and also being just uh, you know a person suffering badly from mental illness, but. I thought it was interesting the way he interacted with the German lady who showed up at Vetno when it was there, like when they stopped paying rent or whatever, and it was time for someone yeah, else yeah. to live there. Because he has this almost unbelievable immediate impact on her where they're like, I, this is probably the moment where I laughed the hardest of this movie when they're like holding hands and spinning in a circle and they're just like as visibly happy as you could possibly be just absolutely joyous at whatever Frank had said to her and I really liked this I felt like this could really be juxtaposed with fame where it's like you have this impact on a huge swath of people that's maybe personal to them but to you it's almost it's very impersonal. You're kind of just expressing yourself and they're all um, attaching. It's very one way. Um, and this one is still kind of one way, but it's the individual impact that he has on this woman's life. And maybe she never really even tells anyone about that and nobody else even knows. We don't even know what he said uh, of what no. he did. But I, I still find a lot of value in being able to give her this, what she called a new truth in her soul. Um, <laughs> I, I, and it's, 
I think it's an inspiring way to try to live your own life, to be someone who can instill that in just your day-to-day interactions. It doesn't have to be uh, a, you know, a performance for you to perform, if that makes sense. You can be um, that person, that inspiration to others, even if your audience is just the person you're talking to. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, it's it's so strange when that whole thing happens, and it's so it's almost out of character for us in this movie because there's so many parts of the movie that are so dark. So they have this like random family show up, and then for them to just leave happier than ever, it's it's such a strange little sequence, and it's I mean, it just adds to the legend that is Frank. It right? does, and and I think I took this one a little too strongly. I took this as proof that Frank is a genius, um, right. and I'm realizing that. That's not the case. <laughs> it's this is probably your strongest evidence for that. Definitely. And at this point in the movie, I don't think you're supposed to supposed to be questioning Frank that much. Um, so I feel like that's the right way to, to look at it. I don't know what the you know woke version of like if Frank is just mentally ill, then how did he do this thing you know to this woman? I, I don't know how how to interpret that exactly, but it's certainly a hysterical scene. One more thing that I wanted to talk about was when John watches a YouTube video on how to be more creative. And these videos exist, and they're not just for oh, creativity, yeah. but they're for anything, how to be more charismatic, how to be, uh, you know, how to be confident. That's another good one. And I've clicked on these types of videos before, and um, I've watched them, but I never felt like they were really the way to a, a, like accomplish the thing that the video says they're gonna help you accomplish, right? I, Anybody could be watching those videos as well. Are you going to watch a video on how to be unique that 2 million other people have watched? I don't think that that's an effective way um, to go about <laughs> it. Um, so I, I thought that was a, an interesting little critique in the middle there where it, you, there is no how-to guide on how to be artistic. There's no how-to guide on how to be unique. Um, it's kind of something you have to just do yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, it comes from practice and it comes from yeah, well, I mean, it comes from experience, right? And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. It's just like a muscle. You have to you have to exercise it. And there are, I'm sure, I'm sure there are great tips out there and stuff. And but these kind of videos are always so, are so strange. First of all, it's like all of them are like based on survivorship bias, right? So yes, only people that like they're like I just do what I did and you'll become, you know, successful. It's like you don't know. You know, like there's tons of other people that probably did the exact same thing you did and they didn't get lucky um, and you'll never hear about them or meet them. Um, and there's plenty of other people that have done something different um, and also got successful. So your sample size doesn't make any sense. The other thing that always pisses me off is freaking sell like these guys that um, like are like, uh, just buy my book to, and you'll learn how to become <laughs> successful. It's like. But this is a chicken and the egg problem right here. Like, I'm going to make you successful by buying your book about how to be successful. Do you even know how to be successful? Because it doesn't matter. As long as I buy, as long as you sell this book well, then suddenly you are. That doesn't really matter. Yeah. It always ends up seeming like more or less of a scam. I mean, you could even do it yeah. on a smaller scale and be like, having a video that says how to make a successful YouTube video is really just a YouTube video that's trying to be successful. They're putting a title exactly. out there, the clickbait that will get you to click on it. And that's it. That might, that's probably it. Um, that was a good way to say so. it. Yeah, it was very concise. <laughs> but I'm glad they included yes. that in this movie, especially because this movie does have kind of uh, somewhat of a critique of social media. Um, it's, a, it's definitely a critique of the, 
of the creative process, right? For you see one end of the spectrum, which is Frank and his crew off in the woods doing who God knows who what what, and then you got John over here who's like going the mainstream route of finding like videos and you know in his private time trying to find out how do I be creative, how do I do this and everything. I think this is even more even better satirized when uh, you find out that eleven months have passed. Uh, since they first got there or whatever, and he's growing that big beard. Oh, great reveal. Like, I finally have the perfect song. And it's literally just the words la, la, la over and over <laughs> again. It's like he spent 11 months writing this stupid song. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I love the 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 beard reveal when uh, oh, they said, he said like 11 months right when he like the camera pans up and you see his beard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are we ready to talk about cool Easter eggs, my friend? Yes. All right, go ahead with yours. The first one is, did you know there was a real-life Frank? Like a guy with a uh, head, was, like a big head thing? Yes, what? it looked very much like the Frank we see in this movie. Wow. Um, his name was Frank Sidebottom. He was like an um, alter ego of a comedian named Chris Seavey, or Sivey. Um, he, is, uh, he died back in 2010, um, and he just he had a bunch of different acts and stuff, and one of them was Frank, which was a Frank Sidebottom, where he he had a big head on his, and he talked into a microphone, and he just you know had this very strange and eccentric personality. He was also a musician as well. Chris Seavey or or Frank Sidebottom? Uh, both. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> yes. I thought it was really cool how he had like the microphone hookup in his head. Yeah, that was cool. There was all these little holes and stuff. I mean, it was something that you could definitely live in, you know, if you were comfortable with wearing a mask your entire life. Yeah, I was surprised at how functional <laughs> it was. I definitely, I fell for the reveal or the or like the um, potential reveal when he was in the shower oh, really? and you saw the Frank head on the floor. I was like, oh no, are we going to see who it is? And of course, no, he's still showering. No, he has a plastic him. bag over his head. I don't even know how that makes sense. <laughs> he's not suffocate. Um, showering. It's so funny. Well, I have another Easter egg that's kind of similar to yours um, as far as an interesting parallel, I would say, somewhat of a parallel, and that's Captain Beefheart's trout mask replica. So Captain Beefheart is an artist, and he has this critically acclaimed experimental album. I don't even want to try to define it because experimental is not even the right word, Um, but it's called Trout Mask Replica, and there's a whole lot to go into this, but it was this guy, Captain Beefheart, <laughs> that he didn't actually know all that much about music composition, um, but he had some really talented musician friends, and through working with them, he was able to create this bizarre uh, album called Trout Mask Replica that combined like musical theory, but also like naive creativity into this, this combination that I truly don't understand. Um, this is actually... Alex from Honey Guide recommended that I do some research on Captain Beefheart before doing this episode, and I tried, but there's so much to go into. So what I'm going to tell you is if you thought this creative process was interesting, if you think that the whole uh, Frank and Vetno and 
you know, creating a whole new musical notation system. Uh, those ideas are, if those ideas are novel to you, then I recommend you look at, uh, look up Trout Mask Replica um, and Captain Beefheart. Uh, there will be a link in the description to a 10 minute video that Vox made that scratches mm. the surface. They do a good job. Vox has made some good musical, uh, you know, kind of uh, explaining videos. Um, but honestly, I don't even feel like I've done it justice with what I've said so far. It, it is so far outside of my ability to comprehend music but what's interesting is is it sounds like it almost sounds like garbage really what they've made but it's <laughs> almost universally praised as one of the greatest albums ever really um because of the unique way that it was created and the unique way that it's structured it's i'm gonna leave it at that if you're interested in what i've said please check out that video and beyond that the actual album um it's it's very bizarre and unique just like this movie I read some articles and they mentioned Cap Captain Beefheart and Chris Seavey um, in them as inspirations for this movie. Um, this movie was originally written as kind of a biopic on Frank Sidebottom, uh, but it, it got twisted as they added all these other like notable characters in the eccentric music world um, and eventually became its completely own thing. Um, and they were hoping when they made this movie, when they finished it, that it would be a really good um, kind of uh, homage to Frank Sidebottom um, and to people like Captain Beefheart um, in kind of explaining their process and how and their outlook on the world in a way. Yes, I, I, there's a lot of parallels between Captain Beefheart and his relationship to his band members and Frank and his band. Uh, so Interesting. I'll leave it at that. I'm, I'm, I really don't feel like I'm doing it justice, but if this is something that's interesting to you, I implore you, uh, to research for further one more easter egg this movie was full of references to websites and online uh you know representations of what was going on in the film i looked up their youtube channel and there's only 130 subscribers there's absolutely no content on there there is a discussion board that's full of people who are saying like i'm here because i watched frank and uh but none of it is all that recent so i was a little bit disappointed but it does exist who's here from 2014 yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah I, I, there were some people who were saying like i'm disappointed that there's not something here but um mm. i don't know it almost seems right that there's nothing there because this movie wasn't actually an endorsement on online content <laughs> <laughs> no not really at all all right, so let's move forward to the songs. And there's definitely some songs we need to talk about in this film. And, uh, oh, the first one we're going to talk about is the likable song. Yeah, Frank's most likable song. I've always dreamed that one day I'd have a band member who shared my vision of creating extremely likable music. So thank you, John. You gave me the little push I needed. Okay, enough chatter. Here it is, my most likable song ever. Coca-Cola, lipstick ring, go dance all night, dance all night. I've got dancing legs, woo! I've got dancing legs! They won't stop me dancing, no, they won't stop me dancing. Kiss me, just kiss me, kiss me Nephrodite. Just the way you like it, just the way you like it, kiss me. Kiss me, lipstick, kiss me, lipstick, Ringo, that's the way you like it. This song is 
brilliant <laughs> it is the as a combination of all the, it's like someone who listened to a bunch of different pop stations all at once and decided what they what was popular like what they, they knew what was popular and then tried to put that into a song but then didn't really listen to it back again before they played it again it's it's amazing like uh, like having the repeated lines and stuff and then they're like you know dance or kiss me or whatever and it's just like all these commands right <laughs> you always hear that in pop songs it was perfect it was such a, a perfect example of like something that tries to be so likable that it's just like off-putting it's uncanny in a way i uh i loved how frank was saying that it's like john fixed it like a, a song yes. is something that can be broken and, and then repaired, uh, that there is a correct and an incorrect, uh, which goes against everything that we had seen from Frank before that. Yeah, I think at this point you start to see the mask sort of crack a little bit, don't you? Ooh. Um, you, you start to see Frank start to break down and uh, you know his interactions with other people start to become more and more insane, more and less and less you know controlled. Um, and in this scene, he really does seem like a cr more crazy than he does in almost any other part of the movie. What about you? Songs? So yeah, the next song I want to talk about was the Lone Tuft song. Hey, look at this. It's a little tuft in the carpet. I wonder how old he is in carpet years. Is it spring? Hmm. He's the first to wake, or is he old, but still strong enough to keep what winter wants to take? Lone standing tuft defies the foot. Is it luck that you're still standing? Not been flattened too. Do you tremble beneath the gentle breeze that's displaced by my shoe? Lone standing tall. Sorry. Frank. That's amazing. <laughs> so, this is kind of what I was talking about. I feel like I've had this exact reaction when, um, you know, my, my, friend Nick Heredia who I've had on the on the podcast many times I've seen him just whip up a song right quick right in front of me where before there wasn't a song and then moments later there was you know and I'm like how did you do that <laughs> and uh, I mean he, that's exactly what Frank does here and one of the things that I love most about him about Frank is that he finds inspiration in everything I find this very inspiring exactly and I'm just like John which I don't want to be like John, but in this case, I'm, I'm fine with it because uh, I, I like that. I like being able to be inspired and to just take something mundane in every day and turn it into something magical. Um, it doesn't have to be difficult, you know? If you just have a creative mind, you can, and the ability to write music, you can turn something <laughs> mundane into something super fun. And I, the closest I can get to this is like, um, like I, like humor, like finding a way to make a something plain or, or ordinary into something that what makes you that, laugh. Was uh, it that that Bo Burnham says? Anything can be a comedic moment. Never waste a moment. Anything can be a comedic moment. <laughs> um, what is that from? I think that's from uh, his second special. Um, words, make words, words. Oh, oh, or, oh, ding. I think. I no, can't that's remember. the first one. Yeah, I think words, words, words is what? first. It's, it's what. what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because he's he's segueing between bits. Because he's going from one 
musical instrument to the other. Yeah, wait, what's the punchline though? That's all he says. He goes, to the, he goes from one thing to the other. He says, never waste a moment. Every moment can be a comedic moment. And then he gets to the next part. Well, I, I, okay. I agree, though. I, um, it, it doesn't have to be comedic or musical, but, you know, it's just being able to, you know, flip that switch and, and take something that's plain and ordinary that some people might look right past and create meaning and create something memorable. So I really like that. Well, th- this is like another one of my critiques of this creative process, I think, is I, I really believe that inspiration is more of a mindset than like a place, right? You, you open yourself up to inspiration and inspiration will, will come to you if that's something that you feel like you need. Um, whereas, you know, going to a new place and then expecting there to be inspiration there is not the right opportunity. What you have to do is, is use that journey to that place as your meditation to opening yourself up for inspiration. But really, it doesn't matter where you go because inspiration can come from anything. So, like... Uh, I do like this. I like the open-mindedness and the hopefulness that Frank has. It displays in this part. And it's probably one of the like most you know, charming parts of the movie because you actually feel like they're actually going to make something. Uh, it's not until later that you realize that it's all kind of a sham. Well, John really literally says you should be famous after this. So. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. But okay, one more song that I want to talk about, and it's the final song. It's I Love You All. That but smoked out cowpoke, sequined mountain ladies. I love you all. Put your arms around me, fiddly digits, itchy britches. I love you. And for me, this was what, earlier when I talked about the music that they played in this, where they were bra- brave enough to have actual bad music, but also competent enough to have good music. I, I unironically like this song. Like, I think it actually came together and became something where I was like, okay, there's a little bit of the Frank genius that we were missing. It is, it is executed extremely well because it isn't until the credits start that I really recognized it. I was like, oh yeah, you know, this is, this was well made. You know, th- this, this has a lot going into it. It feels like a real song, but the way they introduce it as just kind of random ramblings from Frank and then them playing along with it and then him kind of catching on, it's really clever. And it makes it, it really kind of feeds into this idea that like the band's going to be okay as long as they have each other. It's really, anybody else that comes in here and tries to change that is that dynamic is going to have a bad time. Um, so I don't know. It, it was a really nice ending. It gave you a happy ending to it. And it was a great send off because it is a great song. Totally agree. It was a great way to end the film. Okay. Now we're ready to move on to our quotable moments. And I have the first one. Um, well, so how would you describe the, uh, 
would you describe your music? Thank you for your inquiry, Anthony. It's a pretty fucking boring question. Uh, that's the itchy, isn't it? I would describe yeah. our sound as fucking happy. Oh, you, Lucas. He's an So this is what you hear as John's in the deli, right, before he heads to the beach and witnesses the band um, in crisis as Lucas is trying to drown himself. And I just thought it was interesting. This kind of... This is basically all we get of Lucas. And you hear a few things. First off, it sounds like he's letting the interviewer talk to them, right? He's trying to get the band some good publicity. And that's something Clara clearly doesn't care about and a point of contention that uh, comes between Lucas and Clara. And that's going back again to a point I made earlier. That seems to be her problem with these other, the, the keyboard players, um, that they yes. keep on trying to make the band bigger and more public. Um, in the, when, when he's in the water and the policemen are trying to get him out, you can hear Lucas say, I'm not just fingers, which is what Claire <laughs> I did not calls, catch that. Yeah, I actually didn't. It was hard to hear, but I, ha- I had the subtitles on, so I saw that he said that. And Clara um, calls John just fingers, and um, he also says she wanted this from the beginning, removing all doubt that anybody else like kind of forced his hand into this. Um, so I, I didn't get any of that the first time I watched. But when I went back and revisited it, I was like, oh, they were dangling it right in our face. <laughs> like, yes. This is exactly what we knew was going to happen. No, that's nice. That's a nice setup and payoff there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think kind of like that scene with the German lady, right, where Frank demonstrates his kind of quote-unquote genius. I think Clara can be two things at once too. She can be both the caring, you know, caregiver, the person that's looking out for Frank, doing everything, and also be just freaking crazy as well. So, I I, I think, I think you're right. What you said earlier about there being a duality in Frank, but also in a lot of these characters. Agreed. All right. Uh, next quote: Cheese and ham, panini. Hashtag, living the dream. Oh my gosh. So. This definitely helped me to see how plain his life was before, um, John's life. To have, ha- just specifically hashtag living the dream, or living the dream, I think, without the G. That is a phrase that I hate so much. I, <laughs> I mean, I work, I work in a, like, the classic cubicle office, you know, which is, is fine. It's a, it's a job. But one of the things I have to battle with is, you know, the trite office talk that is happening in every office across, like, the world. You have a case in the Mondays? Yes. Like, <laughs> mentioning what day it is and, and, you know, talking about, like, how was your weekend? What are you doing this upcoming weekend? And saying, answering, like, how are you doing by saying, live in the dream, I can't, I die a little bit every time I, I witness that. So I, I try hard to avoid those things in my personal life. And I, I recognize the, how boring this man's life is when cheese panini means living the dream for him. Okay. But, but at this point, I think you're right that maybe the cheese panini is the most exciting thing about his life. But for me, this is an early indication of something that happens later in the movie, which is John's um, document, like f- documentation of the of events, and twisting them to look more positive than they really are. Ah, okay. I think there's two things happening here. There's 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 John 
um, processing this entire experience as some sort of experience with a very eccentric band, and then him twisting that even further to make it look more positive in, on his online presence. Essentially, it goes so far it's basically lying, but it's essentially him uh, taking this documentation aspect and pushing it towards something way more like way more toward propaganda i guess yeah i mean anybody's social media profile they're their own publicist they're their own pr so um you know he can twist that how he wants i like that that draws a lot more meaning from it than i was just kind of well that that, i don't think i don't know if that one example is the perfect example i think there are probably better ones further out Yes. Um, but and I don't think it's, it's, it's more than just him, like, like it's a well-known, well-stated fact that social media is not real life, right? You can't judge people by their curated social media posts. But this isn't exactly it. John is reinforcing this thought to himself. He's giving himself the boost he needs to continue working, despite the facts that lay directly in front of him. And he's not journaling to address the issue, but to hide his own issues, which I find it extremely problematic as someone who finds journaling very, very therapeutic, something that helps me address problems in my own life. For him to use that same tool to just further dilute himself, I find very disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can also just take it at surface level as like a a 17 follower Twitter egg profile shit posting. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He made, maybe we're putting way more thought into this than he did. And he's just bored. And he's like, better tweet about this because I'm eating a sandwich. Like, (laughs) that's right. But I mean, he's, he, he's acting as if he is this famous artist or the struggling artist, right? Right. Um, he's like, I have a great idea for a song. I'm going to tweet about how I have a great idea for a song, you know? And to anyone looking in on this, is they're going to see, oh, this guy is an artist. You know, he, he, can, do, he can do all sorts of things. Um, yet you, you, really, you see how he really is, and he's far from the most creative person. He's way more obsessed with being famous than he is about making music. Um, and he's really kind of empty, all those posts are not really about himself. They're really about what he wants to be. Well, it's interesting because um, one of the things I really did like was the opening sequence of him attempting songwriting. I thought that yes. was really creative. It drew me in. Because um, that's always something. When you when you do a podcast where you're watching a movie, you know, I'm not always watching a movie on my time, if that makes any sense. I'm like, I have to watch this movie or else I'm not going to be able to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> and... Um, so I sat down to watch this movie and I was like, all right, here we go. I gotta, I gotta focus. And once that sequence began, I was like, okay, I'm in. I, I can't <laughs> wait to see the rest of this movie. Um, cause that, that was creative. It was funny. Um, it, it was, was something it I was, even, it was a good way of showing what kind of person he was and then to show what kind of arc he would go on later in the movie. Right. He said, take careful note of what's happening here and notice how it changes throughout the movie. Yes. And I even, I was trying to do it on my way to work today. I was like looking at like street signs and stuff and trying to like hum a melody and like come up with like a, it didn't work. I was about as successful as he was, but I thought it was like a creative way to just look at the world and try to make something of it. You know, I do that same thing all the time. I I do that all the time, especially when I'm just like around and stuff. I'll sing songs about what I'm doing. Yeah. Especially if I'm around like my dog or my girlfriend, I'll sing cute dog or cute girl songs (laughs) to them. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. All right, I got the next quote. Don. Yeah? The head. It smells like sausage. He never takes it off. Never. 
No, never. He sleeps in it? Yep. What about eating? He sucks liquid food through a straw that he funnels up under the neckline. Occasionally solids, but it's not encouraged. What kind of liquid food? Grownut. It's like a supplement. He must have a very bushy beard. Not necessarily. How does he clean his teeth? Look, John, you're just gonna have to go with this. So this is this is where the movie kind of takes a little bit of a turn, and it tricks and it helps sell the twist later. I think by making you believe that maybe you shouldn't be taking everything so seriously. Maybe you know this whole idea that Frank has this this thing on his head. It's just a thing you have to go with. You know, don't like the movie is telling you don't think about it. Don't worry about it. it. Like the logistics of it are not important. What's important is something else. And although that is sort of true, the logistics of the head become something that's important as the movie goes on. And the more you ignore it, the more you miss the real point of the movie, I think. So this, I feel like it's a red herring. It's something that if you're watching it for the first time, it's going to make you more likely to fail, fall into John's shoes and not question the way things that the band is doing, not question the way that Frank runs his, his band. Um, but instead... Uh, what you should be doing is not believing anything Don says. <laughs> when Don says that Frank is the most sane person in the world, that should be a red flag for you immediately. But when he, uh, uh, later on, when you're watching it for the second time, when you see this, you know this isn't true. And throughout the movie, you see that there is real consequences to this. The fact that Frank has this thing on his head is a real thing. It's not something that we can just ignore. It's not, it's not just a creative choice. It's a symptom of something greater that we need to pay attention to. So that was pretty clever, actually. That yeah, I'm definitely. I hate to admit it, but I was so John this whole time. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> These guys, this is a real artist. Like, <laughs> I no, I was, I was hesitant. Honestly, I was like, I couldn't get on board with it because I, I didn't like John very much, you know. And I thought it was interesting because I knew Michael Fassbender was the, was Frank. So I, I, I actually, I haven't said this yet. I didn't know Fassbender was in this movie. Oh really? Yeah, I didn't know. And I knew Dom Hall Gleason was in it for some reason, but I didn't know anybody else that was in it. Like even seeing Maggie Gyllenhaal, I was like, Maggie Gyllenhaal, awesome! <laughs> I haven't seen you since Donnie Darko. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know. So actually, the facial reveal for me was very satisfying. Oh really? See, I I that's the only thing I knew about this movie was that uh, that Michael Fassbender had was wearing a mask the whole time. And I was wondering if he was going to keep it on the whole time because I thought that would be pretty interesting. But yeah, I knew that I so I knew that Donald Gleason wasn't Frank. I knew that something was going to he was going to meet Frank, interact with Frank in that way. And I knew Frank was where I should be focusing my attention. And, and John was just my audience surrogate. Right. But then when he starts making all sorts of weird decisions, like moving into the woods with these people and then giving up his all, like all of his money and they just do more and more off the wall things, I f fell further and further behind. I was still on board with Frank as just some sort of eccentric guy um, up until you know everything started to fall apart. And then it became pretty clear to me that there was something else going on. And then when that twist happens and you realize that he really does have a mental illness, it, it, was, it was satisfying for me because I could see how that all came together and rewatching the movie in my mind i was like oh my god that's a red flag oh my god that's a red flag oh my god that's a red flag they're so, so obvious honestly like yes. i almost feel foolish for having fallen to them because i'm like yeah wait a minute 
none of these people make any sense. Like, <laughs> I'm just, you know, convinced by the mystic surrounding them. It's like, why? Right. Why well, is their band the name thing. so weird? Why is this guy wearing the hat? Like the hat? It's where? How do this they all find This line each right other? here from Don, where he says, "You just have to go with this." Does so much work for you. It it primes your brain for what to expect, and when it doesn't quite give that to you, you're left a little uncomfortable. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right, next one. I, I'll take this one. I say tell everyone everything. Why cover anything up, right? Can I ask you something? Sure. Why do you wear that? You think it's weird? Kinda. Well, normal faces are weird too, you know? The way they're smooth, 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 and then, you know, all bumpy and holes. I mean, what are eyes like? Like a science fiction movie. Don't get me started on lips. Like the edges of a very serious wound. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So in relation to what we just said, this this is pretty obvious, like double entendre here, right? Uh, Domo Gleason asked this direct question about the head. It's the first time we're ever addressing the head. Uh, well, no, that's not true. That's the first time that Frank is directly addressing the head. Um, and he doesn't directly address it. He just talks about how weird faces are. Now, normally this would just be kind of a funny anecdote, right, to say to, to, say to someone. Uh, but in with the light of knowledge that we know that of Frank's aversion to his own face, this becomes a really big, like, oh, <laughs> this is what you really think. More so than it's like a oh, this is a funny thing I say because I always wear this mask and I always get the same question. It's more of like, oh, I actually think that human faces are pretty gross. And um, and that's why I kind of wear this mask. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it does sound like a funny little anecdote, but he doesn't give any other reasons. <laughs> like, no, he, just, he totally to blows it off. And Dom Gleason's totally okay with it because he doesn't want to push him on it. It's too personal or whatever, still. Ah, uh, yeah. It's so bizarre to look back at the rest of the movie with that that mindset, that different mindset. Yes. Makes them way less magical. <laughs> <laughs> but I do All like right. his I I mean, I like the the um the sentiment behind saying like I say tell everyone everything. Um I like that honesty. I like that sure. kind of authenticity, but it sounds like it's just words from Frank because Well he's yeah, d- why well, cover anything up, right? said by the man in the mask yeah. like <laughs> it carries very little weight uh when you see the context of it right but i agree you're i i agree with that why you know i say tell everyone everything why cover anything up authenticity is is very valuable um but still yeah all right the next one this is this is pretty soon after that last one i'd love to hear one of your songs i would too gone I, I don't i don't think so Please. Hey guys, John, he writes his own music. He's gonna play some music for us. Come on. Clara. Share your music with us, John. Um, One of the things I think is most interesting about Michael Fassbender's performance is how he portrays different emotions through, even though you can't see his face, it's all through his body motion. And even when he isn't wearing the mask, you see that he kind of moves his whole body. Like he doesn't like, he doesn't quite like just move his head a lot, right? He has kind of exaggerated motions to kind of go along with his exaggerated head. 
um, which is something that you have to do if you're wearing a mask. In order to portray how you're feeling, you, ha uh, you have to exaggerate your body motions because your face doesn't do any of the work. Uh, so I, it's, it's, it's interesting. But this point right here, right, you see that like, it starts off as Frank describing his own expression as being like, you know, delighted or like hopeful or, or, you know, interested in what John's about to do. But the way he says this line and the way that everyone stands over him is very confrontational. It's very much like, do it, dance for us, you dancing monkey. <laughs> like, I don't believe in you kind of thing. So it, I find like this, this scene takes a weird turn, especially when Clara enters the room, because even Frank, even though he can't tell his expression, is very much like, share your music with us, John, forceful, mm. uh, like aggressive, um, confrontational. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and I love the way that Donald Gleason falls in his face here. It's just a, it's perfect, actually. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot. This is a strong argument for Dom Hogleason not being a real artist because he talks yes. all about his stuff and he's been there for so long at that point, yet he still has nothing. Essentially, nothing. Especially when he says, Oh, I write my own music. I write my own music, right? And then when they call him out on it, he has nothing. Literally nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so silly. Okay. I got two quotes. I want to read them back to back. Ready? Uh -huh. I've come to realize that this is my bluff Kansas. That here in Vetno, I have found my abusive childhood. My mental hospital. That which pushes me to my furthest corners. Something must have happened to him to make him like that. Nothing happened to him. He's got a mental illness. The torment he went through to make the great music. The torment didn't make the music. He was always musical. If anything, it slowed him down. Another big aspect of this movie is John's fetishizing trauma. John wishes that he had some sort of traumatic backstory to pull inspiration from. Um, not only is this pretty sick and gross, but it's added, there's this added twist that when he finds out that Frank's family was totally normal and totally supportive, he realizes the only thing that was ever holding him, him John, back was himself. Now he says, he actually says, uh, just like my family, you're, you're just like my parents, right? And he realizes that like all those things that Frank said to him, that your music is, is crap, that, that, that all those things that Claire told him, that he would never amount to anything, that all those things that Don said, that like, oh uh, yeah, I, I wrote a song too, and it's also terrible. Like, those are all true in a way. Like, he never, he didn't have to have all this extra stuff in the background to, to make him great. He just never was great. <laughs> That's a tough pill to swallow. It is a tough pill to swallow, but it's something that our 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 protagonist needs to hear. Um, but I, I really do like that they address this tr like fetishizing trauma thing about how like oh it's like if he suffered then he really had something to say kind of thing and like maybe that's true you know maybe great art comes that requires some suffering or some sacrifice but that's not always true and you shouldn't seek that out you know and in many ways I feel like it's just harmful there's the you know. If you if you lose someone close to you, then like the inspiration inspiration doesn't stem from that, right? All that stems from that is pain and like a hole in in the fabric of your of your social system of your of your being, you know. 
It uh, reminds me of a quote from Squidward Tentacles where SpongeBob <laughs> was uh, in his art class and he was, you know, having fun with all the, the you know, art that he was doing. And Squidward was trying to teach him real art and he was like, art is suffering. You know, it was his <laughs> take on it to kind of destroy SpongeBob's, you know, um, naivety and his, his youthful enthusiasm for art. Um, and I think that that does a you know more stark um, example of kind of the same message. It's like, yeah, maybe sometimes, but not inherently, not always. No. It's not exclusively no. suffering. I think there are some interesting and powerful stories that can come from suffering. But those stories rely on the person telling them to be a certain level of okay in order to actually make that happen, you know? They're not broken. They're not totally broken as people. They're, they're, they're recovered enough that they can functionally tell the story that they need to tell. It, it, the suffering and everything is just, it's not something that defines you. It's something that you have to overcome. And John doesn't seem to understand that. Yeah, no, and I think that's important to point out um, because it's not yeah, something you should seek out or you know right want. which is why he's like oh i'm so vindicated in this awful experience you know like now i have this mis- now i'm miserable so i can also make music instead of thinking why am i miserable maybe i should change that right <laughs> oh boy yeah our, john is very misguided in this movie and the more we talk about it the more i i hate how much i saw things the same way as him <laughs> i'm sorry I'm sorry to lift the veil from you. Well, no, no, no. That's exactly why we have these kind of conversations, though. I love, uh, you know, seeing it from a different perspective and seeing it from a perspective I think that I agree with a little bit more. (laughs) Um, But with that, Joey, I believe you know what time it is. It is time for us to go a little deeper. deeper, deeper. So we've already talked a lot about some of the stuff I want to cover, but just to to go over it again a little bit, um, this movie conflates the creative process and mental illness or insanity. Um, John feels, seems unable to differentiate between the eccentric and the insane and constantly conflates the two. And there are several ways he digs himself deeper into the hole. One of them is red flags. I want to point out some of them just because I think they're fun. Um, The first keyboardist tries to drown himself in the ocean. Uh, He never heard them finish a song at all. Uh, He heard them start a song and then they all left the stage and then they called him back and they said, do you want to be part of the band? And he said, yes. <laughs> he never heard a single song they played. The revelation that at least two of the band members met in a mental hospital, which goes back to the fetishizing trauma. Um, moving to the woods with no financial creative plan for an indefinite amount of time. Um, the second keyboardist hung himself. Uh, no support for his own creative endeavors. It's not a support uh, structure for, for John at all. Oh, yeah. They totally ignore all of Everything his creative he does. input. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the complete lack of any sort of coherent structure. Um, the man who won't show his face ever, uh, <laughs> including when he's in the shower. Like, the, yeah, you mentioned that scene earlier, right? The first time you see that, like, oh, my gosh, he's so committed to this role. Oh, my gosh, it's so funny that he's in the shower with his head. But if you think about it for a second and there's this guy right who always wears this mask and he even wears it in the shower he has multiple of them that he exchanges in and out like that's not a red flag for you that something's <laughs> going on that this guy is not a hundred percent in the head he doesn't have all his marbles yeah. what's going on inside <laughs> that head inside that head <laughs> very very well put <laughs> the other thing is documentation which again I, I mentioned a little bit um 
so his posts are always taking the hopeful approach. Uh, John's uh, post, he's choosing to see the best in the situation. Rarely does he ever reveal the true insanity of the situation. And he's doing this to obscure not only um, you know, the reality from his adoring fans, on uh, his Twitter followers, but from himself too. The more he does this, the more he posts and stuff, the more it's reinforced in his own mind that this is really a good for him, you know? This is the right way to do things. No one else is willing to commit as, far, as much as I'm willing to commit to making something great. Even though, like, yeah, you have no evidence that something great is going to come out of this. In fact, a lot of the things you're doing are counterintuitive to actually making music. So <laughs> I, feel like it's, I feel like it's very important that we all take objective looks at our own lives and things we're doing sometimes, you know, and say, why are we doing it this way? Why am I making myself miserable? <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not immune to that. Anyway, one other thing I want to mention is social media fame. So John and Frank, by association, become obsessed with the small virality. 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 Thank you. I wrote this word down and I can't <laughs> pronounce it. The small virality of their of their online content. Um, unfortunately, it's all not that. It's not that significant. It's still very very obscure. But it feeds a delusion that their isolated and limited nature is enough to garner a following or a living. Um, and this is kind of aided by John's desire to just be famous. He wants to be someone who's made something great, not someone, not the artist who made something great, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah he, he wants to be known for having made something great. He doesn't actually want to make something great. Exactly, exactly. And everything he does ties to that, right? He says, I want to, I, oh, I write music, but he, he, he doesn't. He just thinks he does or, or pretends to or attempts, but doesn't complete, right? It's, or he views himself as someone who does, but it doesn't but for no reason. There's no actual real life tangible reason to believe that. Right, right, right. right. It's very, I don't know. It, it's, it's very strange. <laughs> and it's the, it certainly is antithetical to the way that the band wants to run itself, where they're trying to make something great, right? They're trying to make something that's cohesive to themselves, and whether or not they're going to be successful is kind of up to Frank and and Clara and the rest. But uh, their goal beyond that is, you know, something small, right? They don't actually care about getting recognized or going on tour or anything like that. That's not important to them. Okay, that's all I got. Anything for you? Well, uh, like I said earlier, the music making process is fascinating to me. I think it's really interesting to see somebody really authentically express themselves through music and even collaboratively. It's it's very impressive to me. And watching this movie reminded me of an episode of Planet Money that I listened to. That um, it was made back in 2011. So granted, it is kind of old at this point, but um, what I want to talk about is an example of how music gets made. Um, hmm. Back in 2011, they documented um, how Rihanna created one of her albums. 
And they had this thing that's called a hit factory or known or a writing camp, as they sometimes call it, a little bit nicer way to, to call it. But basically, they hire a bunch of the best songwriters in the industry. And I'm, I'm not sure how they really measure best, but probably on marketable and how much, you know, the success of songs that they've written and some of the best producers, people who make music tracks, instrumentals, songs without lyrics. And they hire a whole bunch of them at the same time. And they rent out a whole bunch of studios and bring them all to one place, pair them up, a a songwriter with a producer, and get them to make songs, okay? And this is all all going into a Rihanna album, a album that will say, these are songs by Rihanna. But already we've got 20 people who don't know each other who are getting brought in to collaborate (laughs) on these these songs. And it's expensive. It's about $2,000 to rent a studio like that per day and they do this for like a couple weeks and so they come together and it's, it's very expensive planet money of course has to talk about the the dollar amount and i, I wanted to um, kind of recap what they talked about um it costs them fifteen thousand dollars for like the the songwriter it costs them twenty thousand dollars for the producers These are averages but um it costs about fifteen thousand dollars for the vocal producer who helps to um perfect rihanna's version of it and uh, about ten thousand dollars for the mixing engineer um and not every song that gets created in this whole process even gets used basically they bring all these people together the be- the songwriters make up lyrics to the instrumentals that the producers have brought in. So it's not necessarily even something Rihanna has any sort of creative input on. They're just making up lyrics that they think will be marketable, lyrics that will sell, the lyrics that will catch on and be an absolute hit. What they're really trying to do is turn this money investment into a return. They want to make money off of this album. Um, so they get a whole bunch of these put together. They've write songs, producers collaborate, a lot of money gets poured in. And in the end, Rihanna picks her favorite out of the tracks that are produced. Um, and that's just a small part of it. They act, like Once they've produced these songs, they have this whole marketing rollout and they have to make a music video. And basically having this veil kind of pulled back on it's like, so how did Rihanna make her latest album? Well, look at all these people that (laughs) it's their job basically to do this. All these people who it's really to me, not creative at all. It's people who are like building manufacturing hits. That's why I really like calling it a hit factory. Um, And then Rihanna just chooses her favorite out of that, probably with a similar intent to make a whole bunch of money. And while I do believe Rihanna is a talented performer and an icon, and I'm not trying to trash you if you're a fan of Rihanna songs. I like a lot of her songs, but it removed a lot of that authenticity that I put or that I associate with my favorite artists. I can't hold Rihanna in the same regard that I hold like a uh, Beyonce or like a Kanye West from an artistic perspective, because it's not her that's speaking in her songs. It's just her singing. And um, seeing it from this perspective really, really brought that out to me. So I'm more inclined to, um, you know, value the uh, Vetno process more than something like this. And Rihanna's not the only one. I'm not trying to throw her specifically under the bus, but um, 
I think it's it's interesting just to look at the source of these music and where the inspiration comes from, whether it's from random noises in the woods or the marketing guys saying this is what's going to sell this summer. That's really interesting. Um, I yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that up. The only thing, I, only comment I have is that when you said that's not creative or it's not a creative process, I disagree. I think it is, and I think the people that can afford to do the vet note like process sure great you know that's that's great but that doesn't work for a lot of other creative people out there um my girlfriend for example she's a dance teacher she has to create dances for all of these girls and this last year she had to create more than 30 which means finding songs that are like good for kids like younger than like in te- like teenagers or younger um and then writing a, like choreographing writing a dance for that and like it would be great if she could have some sort of weekend retreat where she got to sit around and like all i'm gonna do is focus on this dance you know all of this stuff but she can't afford to do that all she can afford to do is do it in coffee shops that are at home or in her off time whenever she whenever she can find time to do it and so she has to force herself to be creative and it's hard it's it's really hard on her but it's certainly going to pay off in the long run because she can do this almost at the drop of a hat she can just turn herself into a choreographing machine and make something that's going to make that's going to mean something to someone else right and like obviously there's a lot of tricks to this and everything like that and and i i find it amazing that she can just kind of turn this on or off and kind of and has and has to work at this sort of level right and i think there's a lot of people out there that are creatives that are forced to work at this level that are forced to make paintings at at like a extreme rate or push themselves to make youtube videos or films or anything at a rate that is not comfortable comfortable for them it's something that is more than just oh, I have this great inspiration for this thing and I'm going to go someplace and, and express that inspiration. It's, I have to make this or I can't eat. Like, and I'm going to make it and it's going to still be something special and it's still going to be something creative because it came from nothing. But it, I was able to do it without all of this external stuff. I was able to do it without all of this extra inspiration coming in from you know, who knows where. There was no lightning strike that came down. I can't afford to wait for a lightning strike. I have to make my own lightning. So I like this kind of, like this process in a way where they're making a hit factory. Sure, it definitely cheapens Rihanna's contribution to it. But but think about the creative level that these songwriters and producers are working at. Every single day coming in with something and they have to make sure it's better than 20 other guys doing the same thing, you know, and it's, it's this idea that they have, they're like, all right, we hired you to make this thing. Now we're expecting you to just make it, you know, you don't have time to go out into some remote wilderness camp and, and do psychedelics to find your inspiration. You have to do it right now. I feel like that's so much more valuable as a, from a creative standpoint, someone who can turn it on and come up with something that becomes the number one song in America. Right. Well, and, and I don't want to um, create a false choice here. I'm not saying that Vetno is correct and Hit Factories are incorrect. Um, what I'm saying is it cheapens my view of a song that says, 
you know, man down by Rihanna. Because I'm like, right. no, 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 no. It's not man down by <laughs> Rihanna. It's man down down by songwriter, producer, vocal producer, mixing engineer, marketing guy, um, like all these other people who make up what ends up being this kind of gray, undefinable, uh, co- you know, corporation that is Rihanna. Right? She yes. is a brand. She is a business. She's not necessarily just an artist, so I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to justify Vetno with my argument here. Um, if anything, for me, this just helps me to find more value in the individual expression. It's people who come together. It's like, hey, we're in a band. Now we're writing this song. It's like, okay, you guys did that. Um, yes. You versus there's some no. I think searching for authenticity is something that people are naturally going to do. I think it's something that we're not even conscious of that people do all the time. And when they find out things like what you just described, people are turned off by it. I mean, I certainly am. And it it cheapens the thing that you thought was something inspired and instead is something that is just, um, you know, the credit isn't where it's, where it's supposed to be. So it, it, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a, there's kind of a lesson to be learned there, but I'm not really sure where it go- where it comes from. <laughs> it's um it's something that is I grapple with with music because a lot of pop artists don't write their music. In fact, a lot of times they collaborate with other pop artists, you know. And I don't want to necessarily say there's anything wrong with that if good music is the result. But um, I think part of it is that um, like the the genre that I identify with strongest, or I always have, as is, is hip hop and rap and in that community authenticity is is key it's the mm-hmm. number one thing if you i mean having a ghostwriter is a cardinal sin you can't if you find out if someone finds out that you have a ghostwriter then your career is over because nothing you've said is real everyone has to keep it you know quote unquote 100 and if you're <laughs> if you're not living out the things that you rap about um, then nobody cares um, and obviously there's exceptions to the rule such as drake or rick ross where um, Rick Ross never actually sold any drugs. He just makes really convincing music. Uh, and Drake <laughs> is from Degrassi, dude. I mean, it's just, everyone just, <laughs> he, he just has such broad appeal that it doesn't matter that he lies about all this stuff or a lot of the stuff that he said in his song. So, um, or that other people may or may not have written them for them. But anyways, I just thought it was really interesting. And I, and I kind of opened my eyes to some kind of like corporate hits where um, it's really a gamble that people with a lot of money are making. They're like, if we invest this much in these guys uh, and these people and this artist, Rihanna, then we can make a whole bunch of money. And Rihanna isn't exactly like exploiting anybody to do this because Rihanna doesn't get paid unless the label recoups all this money they invested in getting her these songs. So she's also risking it here right, to right. be part of this process. Yeah, but I, it's just a... Like an interesting dynamic, I guess. It makes the whole thing seem like it, it, it makes you just want to go out there and find something that's a little bit more real, I guess. Yes, it definitely does. So, with that, let's finish our conversation about Frank uh, by giving it our ratings. Joey, do you want to give your rating first? Uh, instead of a rating, I'll just describe my expression. A concerned but thoughtful smile. Did I steal yours? <laughs> I did the exact same thing. I give this movie a non-threatening grin followed by a cute little wink. Ah, <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, Joey, what is the next movie we're going to talk about? The next movie we're going to talk about is Free Solo. 
Yes, which is a documentary about rock climbing and doing it without any sort of safety stuff. Yes, that is the definition. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm excited. I've done some rock climbing. I heard that uh, free soloing is something you should never do. So I'm excited to watch this movie and have my palms sweat while I watch um, because I uh, it makes me nervous being yes. up that high with no ropes. So, um, but also, I mean, the way we've been producing episodes recently, I'm sure there will be an off script episode between the time we release this <laughs> and the next movie episode. So, um, you know, hang in there with us. But um, yeah, so that's going to do it for episode on Frank. You remember that ep- that uh, voicemail we played at the beginning of the episode? That could be you. That could absolutely be you. All you have to do is dial 833-600-2428. Yes, that's 833-600-CHAT. Call us anytime and we'll play it on the podcast that's right you can subscribe to us on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and wherever you find us leave us a review it really helps us grow you can reach us on twitter and instagram at affable chat or send us an email affablechat at gmail.com we also have a youtube channel it's called affable chat i want to shout out alex from honey guide one more time thank you for recommending this yes strange great movie. recommendation alex never would have yes. watched this movie without you and definitely gave me a lot to think about that's right um but that's going to do it for this episode for affable chat i'm benjamin and i'm joey thanks for listening